At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 5 from the passage that we read, focusing our attention upon verses 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul has been enumerating various benefits of redemption that, are those, that belong to those who are in Christ through faith in the Gospel. He's described the peace we have with God, having been justified by faith in Christ. He's spoken to us of the access by faith into that grace of God's favorable disposition towards us that enables us to stand He's spoken to us about the joy that we have in hope of the glory of God in the world to come. Verse 3, he continues, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, better translated, experience. Perseverance, experience and experience hope. And then he says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
So Paul is saying we don't merely rejoice in the hope of that perfect, glorified state of the church that is yet to come, the glory of God in His people, but in addition to that, verse 3, we glory, we rejoice, we boast in tribulations. We boast in affliction, adversity. This word tribulations refers to a situation that causes pressure, stress. It's elsewhere translated hard-pressed. We glory in these conflicts and adversities. We're able to glory here and now. Not only looking ahead to the future, but we can glory in what God is doing in the circumstances of our lives right now, even the most unpleasant ones, even the tribulations and afflictions. And the reason that we're able to do that is because of what we know. Because of the doctrine that we've learned from the Word of God. It's so important for us to understand that Christianity is not merely a feeling. It's not merely a decision. But the decisions and feelings of the Christian faith and life flow from knowledge, flow from doctrine. Somebody who says they're not interested in doctrine is not interested really at that point in anything that has any relevance in the Christian life because everything that has relevance in the Christian life flows from doctrine. We can't be practical if we're not doctrinal. And so he says the reason that we're able at a practical level to boast in these difficult situations in our practical Christian life is because we know something. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, or we've been using the word endurance. King James says patience. This word endurance is used numerous times throughout the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul. And it means endurance, patience, perseverance, steadfastness, constancy, persistence under pressure, resiliency under duress, refusal to quit, stick-to-itiveness. This is the grace that's spoken of here as endurance. And we're told the reason we can rejoice and boast in tribulation is because it produces this highly valuable thing called endurance. And we know that tribulation is producing this because Paul tells us, and we see many examples as we saw throughout uh, uh, the Scriptures in a previous sermon, we saw how valuable this endurance is and how many times it's used in the Bible by the people of God to be victorious and to triumph and to share in the victory of Christ who's the perfect example of endurance Himself who despised the shame and endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. So tribulation produces endurance. But not only that, we're rejoicing in tribulation because it produces endurance which then is not barren but is fruitful in producing the next thing on the list which is in our translation character but probably better translated as experience. Experience. This word experience means validation, demonstration. If, if, if someone was doing a scientific experiment, as I'll mention in a moment, and they demonstrate the hypothesis through the evidence, that's the idea here. Demonstration, proof, approval, acceptance. 
The opposite of this word is the word that we use for the reprobate. Those who have been eternally rejected by God. And so this word means that those who have not been rejected or that which has not been rejected but has been demonstrated to be true and genuine and authentic. It's proven. It's approved. It's accepted. This experience refers to authentication, attestation, substantiation. That which is proven and validated. That's the idea here. So endurance produces this experiential validation. And again, this can be illustrated through the scientific method. You have a hypothesis. You have a claim. You have an assertion. Somebody has an idea. They think that this is the explanation for that thing over there. This is the cause and effect relationship between these two things. And if we do this, it will produce that. They have this claim, this assertion, this hypothesis. And then they engage in experimentation. They do various tests. They test that claim. They test that hypothesis by way of experiment. And then they get the test results. And they have now experience. We've done test results. We've tested the claim again and again from every different angle. And now we have experience. In other words, the result of the experiment is experience. It's the test result. And of course, you know that there are many debates and controversies in our day over various medical treatments and vaccines and things of this sort. That's just to wake you up, you know, vaccine, everybody perks up. But, but there are debates about these kinds of things and the debates surround how much trial and testing has this product endured. Has it endured enough trial and testing to say that we know by experience that it's effective so that we can then use it and have good hope that it's going to produce a good result? You see, endurance of the test or trial produces this experiential validation or demonstration which then leads to hope. And your hope in a particular medical treatment is probably going to be based on your evaluation of the trial and testing that it's endured and then the test results, the experience that have been set forth by the the scientists and the experts. And that's going to really determine how hopeful you are that a particular treatment is going to be helpful or not helpful. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is setting before us here. As God enables us to endure these tests and trials, which we said in our previous sermon, are the the infallible gauge of our spiritual life and maturity, insofar as we're able to endure these trials, we then gain now experiential validation, which then produces a measure of hope. Now the main doctrine we're going to be taking from this this morning is this that the believer's endurance of trials serves to provide experiential validation. The believer's endurance of trials, and here we're taking tribulation and trials as as really two sides of the same coin. Tribulation describes the trouble that you're experiencing in that circumstance, and the term trial describes what God is doing in that circumstance. That God is trying and testing you. 
And your endurance of trial serves to provide experiential validation. Now, I've left that intentionally ambiguous because you could say experiential validation of what? And that's what we're going to be looking at in our sermon points this morning. What validation does this experience produce? Well, first, this experience validates the Bible's trustworthiness. This experience validates the Bible's trustworthiness. As Christians, the bedrock of our faith is the Bible. And if the Bible is not trustworthy, then our faith is in vain. And then our entire Christian life, our faith, our hope, all of these things are in vain. And we're, of all men, to be pitied the most because we're the most miserable. Everything that we hold dear is a lie, a cleverly devised fable, at best a mere speculation. Because all of the certainty that we have and all the hope that we have is grounded in what God Himself has said in the pages of the Holy Scriptures. And so it's very important for us in our Christian life if we're true Christians, and then if we're going to become more and more faithful, mature Christians, to have the the trustworthiness of the Bible validated in our experience. To be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 18, verse 30, that every word of God proves true. And the word that's used there, it's not always translated that way, but I think that's the best translation. The word that's used for that it's proven true or that it proves true is a word that means a furnace for refining metal. And so what it's saying is that every word of God proves true in the tests and trials of life God's believing people find that the word of God in the midst of all these circumstances actually in our experience becomes in our minds more and more trustworthy, more and more true. Of course, it doesn't become more true objectively, but subjectively, the more trials we experience, the more we see that God's Word is absolutely true and without error, and that we can trust it both in time and eternity. That's not true for the reprobate. That's not true for the person who rejects God and who fails the test and is uh, disproven, as it were, and rejected. Uh, and invalidated through unbelief. But it's true of God's accepted people. It's true of every believer that by faith, our experience served to reinforce the truth of God's Word rather than call it into question. And so when you see these uh, atheist apologists that say, well, I was a Christian, and I did have faith in the Gospel, but then these tragic experiences came into my life and, and you know maybe maybe i went overseas and uh, in the war and saw the atrocities or maybe some horrible thing happened in my own life and and i realized that there is no god and it's all in vain and it's all futility and we're alone in the universe and religion is a farce you can be sure that person was never a christian Whatever they were, whatever they professed, whatever they thought about themselves, 
they were never a true believer in Jesus Christ. Because for the true believer, every word of God increasingly proves true. Now, when we speak of the Bible's trustworthiness, there's a more specific content to that. The experience that we gain by having endured these trials and tribulations and have come out on the back end where God has rescued us and delivered us and shown Himself to be who He claims to be, there are specific aspects of the biblical message that are validated for us. For instance, that God is faithful. God is faithful. That's something that can be called into question when we're in a trial. That's something that throughout the pages of the Bible, especially in the Psalms, you sometimes find the psalmist or you find some of the prophets struggling with the faithfulness of God when they look and they see the wicked prospering. Psalm 89, they see all these glorious promises to David and the seed of David on the throne of David and they see the crown of David lying in the dust. And it's a struggle. And they need encouragement for their faith in the faithfulness of God. And we see passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which tell us, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God is faithful. Every temptation you face as a Christian is something that is common to God's people, common to man throughout the ages. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear by His grace. And in fact, the temptation will have embedded in it an off-ramp, an exit ramp, a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Notice it's not a way of escape to avoid it. It's not a way of escape from the situation per se. But it's a way of escape from sin. It's a way of escape from failing the test so that you can bear up in those difficult, troubling circumstances, in those tribulations. Now that's something that at face value, when you're facing a trial for the first time we could say, that it might be very difficult for you to believe that. Of course, you believe it, but you're struggling at an experiential level for it to be so real to you that it encourages you and it gives you strength and might to overcome and endure the trial. But you see, once God's enabled you to believe that, and you've trusted in His faithfulness, and He didn't let you down. You called upon the Lord, and He rescued you. And it was hard, but He gave you a way of escape to avoid... I mean, maybe you weren't sinless in the trial, like Job wasn't sinless, but by His grace, you avoided great transgression, Psalm 19. You avoided you know, falling off the wagon, as it were. You, you, you pressed on, you bore under and you persevered and endured the temptation. He gave you the way of escape from sin, and you overcame. And once you've done that, you see the next time when that trial comes and you're tempted to fear and doubt the faithfulness of God, 
Now you have that experience under your belt. Now you know, okay, I've been through this. Now Satan's going to want you to forget that, as Israel did throughout the ages, kept forgetting how God had delivered them. Even the same people that were delivered from Egypt and delivered from Pharaoh, the ten plagues, and through the Red Sea on dry land, and now they're in the wilderness and they're afraid, or they go to Kadesh Barnea to enter the promised land, and they forget what God did before. And so you have to remember it. You have to keep it in remembrance. What God has done for your soul. But when He's done it for your soul, okay, then you know that He's faithful. And so the next time that trial comes around the bend, you're ready for it. And you say, I'm going to look for that exit ramp. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I did the last time. Trust in God and He will deliver me. And I'll be able to bear under. And so I don't need to worry about the outcome. That's the experiential validation that this promise is true. Uh, You can see this in Psalm 50, verse 15, in the day of trouble, call unto me, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Now, that may seem like a sort of hypothetical, but if you've called upon him in the day of trouble, and he delivered you, and then you recall praising him, like Psalm 34, You know, I've tasted and seen. The Lord has delivered me. He's shown me goodness. And you're even exhorting other people to trust Him. You see, now you're cooking. Now you've got momentum as you head into the next trial. Psalm 37. We sang this earlier in the service as well. Psalmist says, I was young, now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor His children begging bread. God has always provided for His people all that they need for life and godliness. They seek first His kingdom. He gives them all that they need. Food, clothing, shelter, spiritual strength and encouragement. God has never let anyone down. Psalm 92, the psalmist, he doesn't put it in the first person, but you know what he's really saying in that psalm at the end. I mean, he wrote the psalm. He's saying, I was planted. I was planted by the Lord in the house of the Lord. And I flourished in the courts of God. And even in old age, through my Christian life, I've been enabled to bear fruit. And I declare that He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in Him. God is faithful. And it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to experience it for yourself in your own life circumstances time and time again. This is how the people of God grow strong in their confidence in the Word of God. And they run into that atheist with all his objections against the Bible. And uh, you know, if you're reading your Bible regularly, you find these atheist objections to the Bible. These skeptics, you, you, you almost want to sit down and uh, give a Sunday school lesson and explain to them, not only are you wrong, but you've totally misunderstood virtually every passage that you've quoted in your diatribe. But your heart goes out to them because as a Christian, we don't just have the intellectual ammunition, but we have the heartfelt experience. We know that God is with us and we know that God is faithful. And we know that God is able. Our experience of having endured trials by the grace of God validates what the Bible says about God's power. God is able. God is powerful. And God is mighty. He's El Shaddai. God Almighty. God All-Sufficient as He revealed Himself to Abraham. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, 
And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Do you believe that? Not just do you believe the Bible, and that's in the Bible, and so I guess I believe, but do you believe that? Let me read that again. And God is able, the word in Greek is dunamis, dynamite, God is powerful. God is dynamically able to make all grace abound towards you. All the, the favorable disposition and good gifts of God for your spiritual growth, He is mighty to make it all abound towards you. Not just, not just a trickle, but a mighty flow of grace. That you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. You see, the Apostle Paul is not a Christian minimalist. He doesn't say, well, uh, the righteous are scarcely saved, so back your way into the kingdom. Praise God that, that the righteous are scarcely saved. We see that as an example in Lot's life. Where, you know, praise God for the, the mercy and grace that saves us. But, but at the same time, Paul says, you can do so much better. There's so much potential in, in you, because of the mighty power and potency of God, He's able to give you all grace, all the time, sufficiency in all situations, for all things, for every good work. And we could go to numerous other passages that say the same thing, but I think, I think this verse says all that we need to say there. Do you believe it? You see, as you endure temptations and trials, and you come through those trials, and you experience God's faithfulness and God's power and, and you see it on display in your life and you're amazed at how God enabled you to persevere and endure, my friends, that gives you that experiential validation which increases your hope and your confidence. Also, this experience of enduring trials validates the Bible's trustworthiness when it describes sin and Satan as deceitful. The Bible speaks to us of the, the deceptive nature of sin and of Satan. And we need the experience of enduring trials and temptations to fully appreciate how deceitful sin and Satan are. I realize that when Satan dupes us and tricks us like Adam and Eve, there's a sense in which they understand Satan's deception on the back end of that temptation when they've failed and sinned and they see that what Satan promised didn't come to fruition. I understand that. That's part of it. But, but the fact of the matter is, those who endure trials and are triumphant in trials and who are obedient and believing in trials have the added experiential validation that what, that what the Bible said that in the day of trouble you can call upon the Lord and in all your fears, as the psalmist said in Psalm 34 when we sang it, in all my fears I sought the Lord. That when you're overwhelmed with fear, Satan is tempting you to think that if you do the right thing in this situation, everything's going to fall apart and the ramifications of your obedience to the Word of God are going to be disastrous. 
and you're afraid, and perhaps you're intimidated by the temptation itself. You're overwhelmed with lust or with anger, and you fear, if I don't let some of this out, if I don't somehow give in to this temptation and allow this wickedness, this overflow of wickedness, as James says, to come out, then I'm going to be miserable. And we're intimidated and Fearful, and we think there's no hope, so we might as well just surrender and give in to sin and Satan. But you see, when you've trusted in the Lord in these situations, and He has come to your aid and given you strength to overcome that overwhelming temptation, and He's strengthened you and given you faith to overcome your fear, and He's demonstrated for you that that fleeting nature, uh, uh, the fleeting pleasure of sin that you experienced when you gave in to the temptation is nothing compared to the peace of mind and the spiritual joy that you have having not succumbed to temptation. And he, he shows you, again, not just the negative example of the foolishness and misery of sin, but in comparison to the joy of obedience and to the intimacy of spiritual fellowship that you experience when you seek the Lord. And he shows that those fears that Satan was trying to exaggerate were nowhere near. Uh, nowhere near the joy you have in obedience and really uh, the fears of what all these uh, consequences and ramifications. Uh, one thing you weren't taking into account, the sovereign God blesses and honors those who obey His commandments. And so you found, you found out by experience that God watched over you and protected you in your obedience. So this is important for us. This experience of enduring trials validates everything the Bible tells us about God, about sin, about Satan, and about our circumstances. Secondly, this experience of enduring trials and afflictions validates our own spiritual condition. It validates our own spiritual condition. It validates, we might say, the genuineness of our faith in Christ. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He even uses some of the same vocabulary here. 1 Peter chapter 1 I'm going to begin in verse 4. Well, I'm going to begin in verse 3. Just so many things that connect with our passage here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So that aligns with what Paul's talking about in Romans 5, that we have this hope of glory, this glorious return of Christ, glorious bodies, glorious resurrection, glorious habitation in heaven. So Peter is really operating along the same train of thought here, that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But then he says, verse 5, speaking of you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So he's saying, even now, you're being kept in your present circumstances by God's power. In this, he says, you greatly rejoice. So not only you're rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, but you're rejoicing in your present circumstances as God is strengthening and keeping you by His power. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. These are the tribulations that Paul's talking about. Notice, if need be. God doesn't arbitrarily put you through these tests and trials, but He does it out of necessity for, for your good as part of the process of upholding you and sanctifying you unto eternal life. He says you've been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. So he's saying that you're grieved by these tribulations and trials, but these things are experientially validating the truth and genuineness of your faith. That you're not the stony ground hearer with the shallow roots and the shallow Christianity that when the sun shines on it, it's scorched and withered, but rather, you're deeply rooted in Christ with true saving faith. You're producing some 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. You're a fruitful Christian. The son of affliction is, is producing photosynthesis. And you're shown to have true and genuine faith. And that's important because in the Christian life, nothing is more vital and dynamic than assurance of our salvation. If we're not even sure that we're children of God, and if we're constantly wavering back and forth of whether we're even saved and our faith is genuine, we are utterly weakened, even paralyzed in the Christian life. Doesn't mean we shouldn't examine ourselves and we just, you know, play, play games and pretend that, that, uh, there, that there's no actual need to validate that. Uh, we, we need to examine ourselves because there may be false converts and the surest path to hell is to not examine yourself, but the goal of self-examination is that every true Christian would be able to examine their life, their experience, and see that God has enabled them to endure and therefore to have experiential validation of their spiritual condition. To be able to say, yes, God is working in my life. I've seen His faithfulness. I've seen His power. And He's enabled me to endure again and again increasingly throughout trials. And therefore, I have greater and greater hope that my faith is genuine and that I'm a true child of God. And that is the dynamite that we need in the Christian life. Hebrews 6, after uh, the Apostle warns, after he warns his audience of the danger of being a false convert and of following the pattern of those who profess Christ and experience something of the power of the Gospel and then crucify Him afresh through unbelief and apostasy, uh, after warning them of those in the visible church who drink deeply of the Word and of the ordinances of God as rain falling on the ground, and yet they produce thorns and thistles rather than the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
And right after he says that, he says this, chapter 6, verse 9, but beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. See, they haven't grown weary in doing good. They, they've ministered to the saints. They're continuing to minister. There's endurance and perseverance in this labor of love, in this work of love. So this is endurance. And Paul says, we've seen that endurance, and so therefore we're confident there's an experiential validation even outwardly that your faith is genuine because we don't see thorns and thistles. We see this fruit of love and service, not just a flash in the pan, but an endurance through trials and afflictions. You continue to be faithful. And he says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So you continue to be diligent. That validates and increases your assurance and the strength of your testimony to others, which increases your hope. Your endurance breeds experience, which breeds hope. That you do not become sluggish. You see, far from assurance causing us to be presumptuous and lazy, true assurance that's bred out of endurance, experience, hope, true assurance doesn't make us sluggish. He says uh, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience, there's our word, inherit the promises. So this experience of enduring affliction validates our own spiritual condition. And these people to whom the Apostle is writing, by the way, uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Uh, and, and of course, they, they were um, looking to that heavenly hope. But the point is that your genuine faith is brought out and validated through this endurance and this experience. Also, this experience validates our own spiritual condition in terms of our spiritual progress and maturity. In the Christian life, we need to be continuing to improve, continuing to grow and develop. And uh, it reminds me of uh, the slogan they used to have for Lowe's hardware store. Never stop improving. Never stop improving. That's the Christian life. Our Lord Himself, though He was sinless, increased in wisdom and knowledge, increased in uh, favor with God and man. We need to never stop improving. And in James chapter 1, he connects this experience of enduring trials with that development in the Christian life. He says, chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. In other words, 
Uh, again, people try to set James and Paul against each other. Uh, what nonsense. James and Paul. Uh, I'm sure if, if anyone's ha- you know, sitting next to each other in heaven, it's James and Paul right now. They have so much in common, so much to talk about. Um, they're right on the same page. Paul's saying we can rejoice and boast in our tribulations. James says count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. Now this is our word endurance. Let that endurance have its perfect work. In other words, its work of perfecting you, making you more complete, making you more and more like Christ who is the total package, complete perfection. This endurance is making you more and more like Christ, more and more mature, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. doesn't mean perfect in degrees as if we're sinless, but it means perfect in parts. Let's say you have an ice cube tray and all of the cubes, I guess, I don't know what you call those things, but you know what I'm saying, the indentations in the ice cube tray, they're all 60% full, okay? There's a sense in which that ice cube tray is full, it's perfect, it's complete in its parts, all the indentations, all the cubes are full, but not full to the maximum, not full to the highest degree. That's the true Christian. We're sanctified, we're regenerated in every aspect of our being, our mind, our will, our emotions. Every aspect of our lives is affected by sanctification, but we need to be increasing that level of sanctification. James says that perfection, that maturity process is increased and and facilitated by way of these trials and afflictions. And notice he says various trials. It's not going to be the same for everybody. And, and we could get more specific, but everybody has different experiences, different ways in which the Lord tests and tries us. Uh, you could have a couple that has lots of children that's struggling with those children. You can have a couple that wants to have lots of children and, and can't. You can have all different angles and aspects and and various contingencies and different pathways of life, different experiences. Just like in the Pilgrim's Progress, you read part one and Christian ends up in the slough of despond and he has to be rescued. And then Christiana, in, in the second wave of Pilgrims in part two, they don't fall into the slough of despond. Or, or, or was it hopeful? Or I, I can't remember, it's all jumbled in my mind, but but various other pilgrims didn't fall into that circumstance, but they had trouble at other places where Christian did not have trouble. Okay? So it's various trials, varying tribulations that God has designed for each one of us. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And you have these preachers that tell us, well, Jesus isn't talking about your life afflictions and tribulations there. He's talking about being crucified and persecuted and martyred for the faith. But then we go to Luke and he says, take up your cross every day. So I don't know what those preachers are looking at there because we're not going to be crucified and martyred every day, friends. And the historic Reformed interpretation there is that your cross is the cross that God has designed for you to carry. And it's suitable 
to the sins you need to repent of, and it's suitable to the things you need to have validated. Yes, of course, we take up our cross, and for some, that's a literal cross or martyrdom, but at the end of the day, my friends, if you're going to do this daily, it's got to be something that you're experiencing daily, day in and day out, and we all have those crosses to bear that God has said, it's your cross. Your cross may look different than somebody else's cross. Uh, Read James Durham's excellent sermon on that passage. I'll refer you to that. But this experience validates our spiritual maturity. When we endure, we're shown to have grown and developed to the next level. Thirdly, so we've seen first that uh, this experience validates the Bible's trustworthiness. Second, it validates our own spiritual condition. Thirdly, it validates the credibility of others. And I suppose we could include here our own credibility in the sight of others. But the point is, it's it's a sort of outward validation, either you looking at others and being able to validate their credibility, or other people looking at you and being able to evaluate your credibility. I remember when I was interviewing right out of college for a job with uh, Nationwide Insurance, that in that interview, they asked me, as one of the questions, give us an example of when you had to overcome adversity to reach a goal. Give us an example of when you had to overcome adversity to reach a goal, and you actually overcame it and you reached the goal. And I think I told some story about uh, baseball, you know, when I played high school baseball and, and a difficulty I overcame. But they were looking to know, to sort of validate what was on my resume and what I was saying in the interview. They wanted to hear face-to-face, me looking them in the eye. They wanted me to recount my experience of overcoming adversity to reach a goal. Why? Because when you're in the world working almost any type of job that you're in, you need to know how to overcome adversity to reach a goal. You need to endure and you need to have experience and a track record for enduring in order to have the credibility to get that job and for them to have confidence in you and to have hope that you're going to do a good job. Now, of course, asking someone that in an interview is not always the surefire way uh, to, to validate that, but at least they were trying. They were trying. They were doing their best to at least get some inkling of my experience of overcoming adversity to reach a goal. Uh, I remember uh, at Synod, uh, this year's Synod is going to be at Geneva College, which happens every so often. I remember the last time we were at Geneva College, I was having a meal with a minister in the denomination from a different presbytery uh, who often, you know, we were on opposite sides of a lot of different things over the years. People would not, if, if I gave you his name and and somebody heard his name and my name, they wouldn't associate us as close allies in the denomination. But it's important to have those meals. It's important to to always be having those dialogues and building unity. Uh, and, And we had a great conversation, but I remember one thing that he said to me was that over the years, he noticed that a lot of ministers, new ministers, new pastors would come into the denomination with a full head of steam, with all these ideas for reformation, and they would turn the the church or the world or whatever upside down with all this flurry of activity. 
And he said he noticed that they would come and they would go. They would come and they would go. They would start out and, and it seemed they were the most dynamic thing and then they would leave. And he said that for himself and for some others who hold some of his perspectives, that, that they noticed this and this caused them perhaps to not lend as much credibility to new young pastors that are coming into the denomination with a full head of steam and all these ideas and, and, and within a short time they're gone. And, and, and it stuck with me because he said to me, I'm surprised you're still here. You know, he didn't look at his watch, but you know, that was the kind of thing. Wow, you're, you know, seven or eight years or however long it was, you're still here. And he thanked me for that and he said that that made a difference in, in the way that he would listen to the things that I would say on the floor of Synod. See, experience validates our credibility in the eyes of others and it validates other people's credibility in our own sight. And we can apply this in several different ways. First, potential spouses. Uh, As you're looking for a potential spouse, young adults, young people, uh, parents actively involved in that process, okay, as you're looking for a potential spouse, someone who would not be an unequal yoking, someone who's godly and responsible, you're wanting someone who has a track record of overcoming adversity and of persevering and enduring with their commitments and with their promises in other aspects of life. Not someone who has a track record of fleeing like a bird to the mountains, but someone who has a track record of swearing to their own hurt and not changing. Whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the life of the church, or in membership of the church, membership vows. and I mean, we could think of many different ways, but uh, fathers, as you're interviewing men, I, so to speak, for, for, to marry your daughter, ask them, give me an example of when you overcame adversity to reach a goal. How do you overcome adversity in your relationships? You had a relationship that was failing. Did you just you know, leave it behind or have you been able to rehabilitate strained relationships in your life and you endured that adversity? Also, when you're looking for people as a source of counsel in your life, there are a lot of people with a lot of ideas and a lot of suggestions for how everything should be done. They're going to tell you what you need to do. They're going to tell the church what the church needs to do. They're going to tell the government what the government needs to do. Just go on social media. Lots of experts out there. They're everywhere. Um, and they've, they've, they've got all kinds of advice that uh, if, if we took all of it, it would be you know, so conflicting because there's so many people saying so many contradictory things that you need to learn how to cut through all of the talk and find counselors that have a track record and experience of results of enduring and producing fruit of setting an example in their not just their talk but their uh, their action not just their polemics but in their performance what is the track record when people have followed this person's advice what has happened in the in the family in the life of the church when this person's program was in effect or when this person was doing their thing over the years, what was the result for the peace and purity of the church? You see, lots of people have ideas and every man proclaims his own goodness. 
but what's the track record? What's the value? What's the benefit? What's the history behind it? What's the experience of enduring in fruitfulness and producing that experience? So, very important using discernment. Uh, Absalom, you'll recall, had two pieces of advice in seeking to overthrow David. He had Ahithophel gave him counsel, and uh, one of David's uh, one of David's men gave him counsel. Hushai the Archite gave him counsel as well. And Ahithophel gave him not, I mean, it was good counsel. Um, it would have been effective counsel, let's say. It would have defeated David if he had listened to Ahithophel. At least at face value, it was a better strategy than Hushai the Archite, who was working on behalf of David and who suggested a plan that, that sounded really good, but it ultimately produced defeat, which was, of course, Hushai's agenda. He was working for David as sort of a double agent there. But the, the point here is, both of these proposals, if you go to 2 Samuel 17, they both sound really good, and they both have a really uh, attractive sales pitch attached to them. But Absalom didn't have the wisdom to choose which one was correct. And so often we have, we're barraged with so much counsel. We need to learn to consider Ahithophel had a much better track record at that time of giving effective strategic counsel. But Absalom went for the shiny sales pitch. If you read the passage, I think that's what happened. You see Rehoboam as well. He got advice from the older men within Israel, the elders, and he got advice from the younger men in how to deal with the controversy between himself and the laborers of Israel. And he picked the wrong counselors. He didn't pick the men who had the track record of counseling and learning under Solomon. He picked the, the, the bright, shiny new counsel from the younger men. So use discernment. Also, this experience validates the credibility of dogmatic ideologues on the internet. Uh, it is true, some dogmatic ideologues on the internet are correct and have good things to say. It's not wrong to be dogmatic about an ideology. As Christians, we're dogmatic about the ideology of the Christian faith. But beware of biblical theorists versus biblical practitioners. You have many people out on the internet professing many great reformed and confessional truths, but if you look at their track record, it's either bad or it's non-existent. And so what they really are is biblical theorists whose theories not only of truth, but particularly of implementation of those principles has yet to be tested, or when it was tested, the results were not good. We don't need to be listening to biblical theorists so much as biblical practitioners, people that have the right principles and a track record for implementing them in a way that promotes the peace and purity of the church. Beware of the biblical theorists on the internet because oftentimes their method of implementing very good and laudable truths is toxic and unhealthy. Finally, officer candidates. As we're looking ahead to possibly getting some deacons, um, we need to look for those who are stable, who are enduring, who are resilient, who have experience. Uh, one of the translations from 
the book of, uh, it's either Exodus or Deuteronomy when Moses is seeking to have civil elders raised up. It says, experienced men. Experienced men is the translation. I think our translation says something like understanding. But uh, it's helpful to look at the other aspect of that. Not just this theoretical understanding, but someone with practical wisdom, someone with experience. Experienced men, stable, enduring, resilient, reliable, uh, stable doctrinally. Not someone who's you know, flitting about, bouncing around from one movement to the next, but someone whose doctrinal convictions are stable. Someone who in their relationships is stable and not, uh, as Jacob said of um, Reuben, unstable as water. He shall not have the preeminence. People that are stable doctrinally, relationally, they're enduring, there's a track record. That's the advantage, honestly, of calling deacons or ruling elders is that you're calling someone from your own congregation. Calling a pastor, uh, though we trust God to give wisdom, uh, I'm not going to say it's a crapshoot, but it can be difficult because you don't actually have that experience with the person. You don't necessarily know their track record as well as you would like. You do your best, you do your research, you get your testimonials, and you trust the Lord. But for deacons and elders, we know each other, so there's a, th- th- this principle rings true all the more. Uh, experience validates somebody's credibility in uh, holding office in the local church. Now, uh, this experience, as we'll see next time, breeds hope. Hope in God, hope in our salvation, hope in others. You elect a deacon because you see the endurance, the experience, now you've got hope. Uh, This person is going to do a great job by the the grace of God. It breeds that hope. And, And so I just close by reminding us of how important it is. If we're going to maintain our hope, We're not going to become cynical. We're not going to become discouraged and despairing. If we're going to maintain our hope, we need to be striving diligently by the grace of God for this endurance and this experience. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you endure throughout all generations. And we see your track record, which is good and righteous and mighty and wise, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have helped us thus far, and you will be our help in the days to come. We pray that you would experientially validate our knowledge of the Scriptures and our confidence in what you've revealed, that you would experientially validate our assurance of salvation and our encouragement in making progress in the Christian life and that you would experientially validate our own outward credibility that we may be more and more useful to you and give us discernment in evaluating others according to these principles that we may receive good counsel that we may uh, marry in the Lord uh, in a way that is good and beneficial for us and for your kingdom and that you would be honored and glorified through these things for jesus sake amen